Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. On today's program, we look at women climate warriors across the world and the work that they are doing in relation to fighting against the tide of environmental destruction and for the survival of the planet. We start the show with a panel discussion about women, gender and climate change. The speakers in order are Chanda Gurung Goodrich, who's the Senior Gender Specialist at the International Centre for Integrated Mountain Development. Then Roshan Rathod, she's the Manager of the Raintree Foundation. And the final speaker is Sheba Sen, she's the Founder of Alap India. The panel moderator in this section is Rana Tumaira from New York University in Abu Dhabi. This excerpt starts with Rana Tamira directing a question to Chanda Gurung Goodrich. During your work in ICIMOD, the International Center for Integrated Mountain Development, what role do organizations like this play in the effective integration of gender in climate action? Could you provide us with some concrete examples from the work of this organization? Thank you uh, for this question and thank you for the invite today, the webinar as well as the video. It's a pleasure and especially, you know, to bring out the topic that I so passionately believe in. Um, and your question, you know, I think uh, organizations like us, it's really important. One is like for us and how we do is, you know, we conduct a lot of uh, on the ground research. We do the conventional research as well as action research to really look at what are the impacts of climate change on women. And of course, not just, you know, as we all know, women are not a homogeneous group. So the different groups of women, what's happening to them? And not just the impact, but also how are they innovating? Because women are not, you know, we keep saying women are vulnerable, but that doesn't mean they are passive, right? They are doing something. So what are the impacts? What is it that women are doing? And so it's kind of an evidence-based research to identify gaps, opportunities, challenges and how and what are the ways that we can overcome these challenges given the opportunities there is immense opportunity at this world especially with you know the leave no one behind the sdgs so identify that and place it in the policy dialogue you know in different ways um, apart from that you know whenever there's an opportunity where we are invited to give inputs uh, in climate action policy strategies we provide them for instance, in 2014-15, for the ne uh, Nepal-Napa, we were invited, we gave, and the recent NDC development in 20, uh, last year, we were also invited to give some inputs, so we have given. But I feel uh, most important is, you know, uh, capacity enhancement of the people, because, you know, the climate action of the policies, uh, and we look at, we should look at it as a more plural way, you know, because it's not just the national policies or the regional policies you have at the lo local level. And that's where things happen on the ground and where we can take it up. So we play a lot of role there by uh, capacity enhancement uh, to government agencies, because we work primarily with a lot of government partners and these light agencies, these departments are the one who are working on the ground on action, the programs get rolled out there. And that's where we've done uh, trainings for you know how do you integrate gender or now we've 
moved ahead to not just gender, but Jesse, you know, social inclusion, as well as inclusion of the disabled. How do you include them in the entire project planning at each stage? What do you do? And, you know, we must remember we work with technical people. So for them, they really want tools. You know, sometimes they say, yes, we want to, but we don't know how. So that's what we do. We give them the tools to really integrate. Thank you, Chanda, Chanda for this. And I'm going to build on your answer and uh, ask Roshan a question. Uh, Roshan, in the one minute um, trailer we watched, you coined the term women warrior, women water warriors to describe these women at the front line uh, of this type of work. What are um, what is the power that these women bring to water management and you can you provide some example of these women water warriors from your own experience and work right thank you thank you so much um, i'd like to take just a moment to say that i'm extremely humbled to be on this all woman panel and with with colleagues from the sector who've worked so extensively on this on this issue that's close to my heart so before i joined the webinar i was having a conversation with a colleague who asked me why the term warriors you know, does it not have a negative connotation with war and violence? Um, and I'd, I'd like to point out that the way I see it is, is women are at the front lines of, of daily struggles of water prioritization. You know, even in the video, we saw that there are, there is, water is a, is a finite resource available to them seasonally differently. And there are decisions and choices that they have to make, whether it's in terms of drinking water, it's water for livestock, uh, it's water for children, for cleaning, for agriculture. Um, and these are decisions that they need to take on a daily basis. And I think that that's, they are at the front lines of this. And I feel that, you know, while being on the field with these women in especially the mountain state of Uttarakhand, I was once in Almoda in, in the district. And I saw this happening, women coming around the spring source, engaging in discussions uh, that you know, water was less this time and how did the rainfall affect the water? And these are interesting discussions that they're having around their water source. Um, so I feel like for me, they, they were nothing short of warriors. And I mean, let's be honest, the term women water warriors is also very attractive. It catches attention. And that's exactly what we want in the sector. We want more attention to women being mainstreamed, uh, you know, gender being mainstreamed in, in decision making. And um, one or two examples that I'd like to cite because I think women need to have these women need to have a name and a face as to who these warriors are and not just be faceless out there, you know, as as a community. Um, I'd like to take Maya Varma's name, who has been a very close colleague of mine over the years. She's she's a field officer with a grassroots organization in Almoda, uh, the district of Almoda. And while I was with the People Science Institute there. Uh, we had a program where we would train para hydrogeologists so para workers in spring shed management and we were very focused on on making sure that women you know were getting trained because sometimes you look at women and you say okay they might just do community mobilization but what about the technological aspects of it technology as an area has been is is so patriarchy oriented it's a male dominated area but we wanted to make sure that women are carrying their TDS meters, their pH meters, they're monitoring their, uh, you know, data quality, um, like water quality, they're measuring the spring discharge. And now this single woman, Maya Didi, who was hurled abuses at in the village that she was probably um, telling other women to go against the men in the village is now looked upon as with so much respect that she goes with her, with her water quality testing kit, she's controlling the data. She is trying to understand how to read that data 
we've had examples from an organization in Chirag, uh, again, another one in Uttarakhand. You know, he was he was one of the people who was interviewed uh, for uh, for the video as well. That these women are going and explaining to government officials that you know this is the rocked structure and how does hydrogeology play an important role in understanding the movement of water. So areas we never saw women taking taking um, the front step were now that now that you know with a lot of CSO pushed movement as well as a lot of state departments also coming uh, in and joining hands. I think um, yeah I'd, I'd stop at that. But these these are the warriors that that I'm talking about and hence the term. Thank you. Thank you, Roshan. Next question is for Sheba. Uh, Sheba in um in in the video that we've watched you emphasize the interconnectedness and intricate relationship between many challenges at play whether climate change water insecurity and uh gender inequality um we often deal with these things as separate or as isolated uh issues how should we start to think of them um, in an integrated way how should we go about integrate or at least devising an integrated approach to tackle uh, these interlinked challenges. Yeah, thanks, Rana. I, I, I was really, I'm really glad you've asked this question, actually, because uh, you know the moment we have the term interconnected, it it just sort of spews complexity, and it sort of spews like, oh God, there's too much, too much going on. We need to focus on one thing, get that right. And then you know we then we work out from there, and the point and the and the thing is you know it it doesn't work like that uh, in real life because we are living in a complex system and and when we think about anything in terms of progress or change we have to embrace complexity. So I think the short answer to your question would be that we have to intentionally design for interconnectedness. We have to look at our projects or any intervention. And I'm a firm believer that policy comes out of tangible things happening on the ground, or at least it should. Uh, it has to be uh, reflected in the kind of work that is happening on the ground. And you know, the way um, you know, Roshan gave examples of uh, these women and you know, Roshan, I work in an area literally five minutes away from Chirag in a, one of the states in Uttarakhand, which is uh, in the, one of the Himalayan states in India. Um, so I'm very aware of how when we look at a water project, in my view, it's not really just a water project. I mean, I've started to think that could we move the narrative from a landscape restoration project or a water uh, solution to economic development, to uh, skilling of women and young people? And could that be made regenerative? And what would you want to skill a rural community in? Issues and technologies and capacities that can improve their lives, right? This, that can have a direct impact on the quality of life what they are living. So could we move the narrative from just landscape to maybe climate restoration and economic development or economic development that is regenerative? These are interconnected. So coming back to it, in short, we have to intentionally design our interventions to respond to interconnectedness. And we also have to design intentionally and appeal to various kinds of capital to uh, flush 
funds into these kinds of work. It's not just the role of philanthropy to fund water solutions in the Himalayas. How can we make that attractive to social impact investment, to commercial investment, um, to, to government investment, and of course to, to philanthropy? So it's interconnected, blended, um, intentional design and financing. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Accent of Women. On today's show, we look at women climate warriors across the world and the global struggle for environmental sustainability. We just heard a panel discussion involving Chanda Gurungutrich, Roshan Rothod, Sheba Sen, and it was moderated by Rana Tamira. Coming up next is Vera Bukashi. She's the research director and co-lead of KDI Kenya. She has dedicated her career to learning from, supporting and scaling community-led initiatives related to water, sanitation, waste and sustainability. Good evening, everybody. Uh, My name is Vera Bukachi and I am a civil engineer, uh, but I'm also a researcher um, and a research director at an organisation called the Konkui Design Initiative. And that is what I'm going to be talking about today, um, the work that I do um, in Nairobi. Um, Welcome to Nairobi um, and Kibera. Kibera is an informal settlement in Nairobi, the largest one. Uh, 250 hectares, the size of um, Central Park, 200 to 300,000 people. That is where I grew up about half a mile from Kibera. Um, As a young child living in Nairobi and uh, growing up in Nairobi, um, we, as is possibly quite typical for most residents, had a nanny in the house. Uh, My nanny was called Auma, um, and Auma came from Kibera. Um, And the coalface of Nairobi, the the guards, the factory workers, the nannies, um, the cleaners, a lot of them come from Kibera, like Auma. And she took care of me, and my first experience of Kibera, being about seven or eight years old, was actually being uh, taken by Aoma to her home. Um, And walking into Kibera from a very green leafy suburb into Kibera where there was lack of sanitation, uh, really uh, bad access to uh, clean and potable water. Um, You know, there was a lot of mud at the time, you know, so you had to kind of walk with your gumboots. So there was a lot of challenges that even I, as a seven or eight year old, remember. I went to high school here, um, again, right next to Kibera. Um, and I knew I wanted to be an engineer because I liked to fix things, I liked maths, I liked physics. Um, but I also knew that in a school that I was in, which was a middle-class school for Nairobi, we still had water problems, we still had sanitation problems. We were a school that grew too big for itself, therefore you had to learn how not to go to the toilet in the daytime if there was no water. Because if there was no water, you don't want to be sharing 10 toilets amongst 800 girls. So you had to learn how to do that. And I say that because of the privilege I had compared to people who were living in Kibera. You know, I could say sometimes uh, I have that situation, but for someone else that is all the time they have that situation. Um, And I worked there, the Konkui Design Initiative, around the corner from Kibera. Um, And after I went to study civil engineering, um, lived in London, um, worked for a few companies there, I knew I wanted to come back and work in the water and sanitation space in Kibera. This is the kind of spaces that we work in. 
we as uh, residents um, of Nairobi may not always see this. And this is the kind of spaces we work in and we convert spaces like this, waste spaces in informal settlements like Kibera into spaces like these, which can be used uh, by residents and they're called productive public spaces. They serve physical, social and economic benefits. We work alongside communities and residents to design these spaces. KDI, my organization, has been working for 12 years um, and has done not one, not two, not three, not four. Uh, we've got to the point where we now have up to 11 productive public spaces we've been designing with residents in informal settlements. Now, if you lived in a place like Kibera um, and you talk about informal settlements and the densities that you have, you can imagine that the type of spaces that, if you talk about vacant space, there will be waste spaces, spaces that even a resident of Kibera doesn't want to live in, may not want to use. They have issues of flooding, issues of um, absolute pollution, um, solid waste disposal. So those are the kind of spaces that we've been converting. And our work got us to realize just how many of these spaces are along the rivers. And going back to the story about Auma, and actually in the secondary school that I was in, the girls I was with were from leafy suburbs, but also from Kibera. You'd get to learn what life was in Kibera for these women and, and for the girls. And I'll just highlight a few things. There's lack of safe spaces. Um, the type of public spaces that typically exist in Kibera are probably more geared towards children or towards men. So you'll find a football pitch, you'll find a place to play your video games. You may not find spaces that are safe for women and for girls. Limited spaces for creative or um, educational pursuits. Again, for women and for girls are the kind of spaces that you wouldn't traditionally find. Safe sanitation. Um, I don't know if you've heard about a flying toilet, but it's essentially, um, if you cannot actually access a proper toilet and you're a woman and in the evening you need to go to the toilet, um, you're either going to walk down a dark alley in a very unsafe space or find a bag do your thing and throw it somewhere over a wall. And you find that that's the kind of thing that was happening because there's lack of access to safe sanitation for so many women and girls in Kibera. Then we have found in our work, so the research we've been doing with residents um, and with communities is finding that single women households are more likely to be in climate risk vulnerable areas because they're cheaper. Um, and you'll find single women are going to be living in these more vulnerable places. They're more prone to flood risk, they're more prone to, to facing other risks like disease. Uh, they're the ones who have to take care of their children when they contract cholera or diarrhea, as so many under five children do. And there's a lot of, we've been able to find a relationship between gender-based violence and environmental risk. So the data we have looked and we have found um, is for residents living along the rivers, as you can see in some of our maps here, will speak about um, violence um, going higher during um, environmental risk areas, especially when you have flooding. So what have we done as the Concrete Design Initiative to work with women? One, the way in which we engage with residents um, these projects are not our projects, they're owned by communities and community groups, and we ask for requests for proposals from community groups, but we ensure that the community groups have got a gender aspect in the proposal. So we ask them, what are you going to do about women and girls in your work? And a big reason for this is because we, if you're working with groups in Kibera and the ones we've been working with, very few of them are women-led. 
So you have to ensure that you've put that on the table. We ensure that women are part of the conversation. So we'll have them speaking in focus groups, but more than that, ensuring that you've got even young mothers involved in the conversations when we're talking about participatory design, making sure that they are right at the front there alongside everybody else and being able to participate in that process. We design for girls, we design with girls. And the way in which KDI works is a participatory approach. So we don't always know what's going to come out on the other side, but we want to have these conversations with people to ensure that these types of spaces are considering um, the women and girls. We also talk about upskilling. Um, the typical type of work that we do, and we are building productive public spaces, they will comprise some aspects of construction. You want to make sure that the skilled workers are not only men, which might be typical in most construction sites. And so we've been working with women who've been doing a lot of specific work, especially work like carpentry. And in this particular school, they were building the doors and they were building the windows. And they went through a carpentry academy that was designed by KDI to ensure that they can take this beyond the work that they were doing. And finally, once the sites are in operation, we call them productive public spaces for a reason. They're productive because the operation by the community groups that we work with requires them to make some money and some profit from this work. So in terms of what women might do, in terms of operations, they have communal laundry spaces, which also serve as meeting spaces. They also would be looking at space for education and training, which is fundamental for women. Uh, sanitation businesses, which are designed alongside women so that they know how to be able to run them and have them accommodate women. Uh, savings and loaning groups, uh, income generating businesses, community organizations, all sorts of types of businesses which they can run. So we talk about working at the edges and for women like Auma or for some of my classmates who lived in Kibera, they were living at the edges. And how do we talk about women's activities and environmental risk and scaling impact without having women at the table? So we talk about unsafe, polluted, dangerous for children and girls spaces before. We think we're working at the edges and we hope that working alongside these groups, we're able to promote clean water and sanitation, safe and affordable laundry areas, gathering and meeting places, safe places for, safe play spaces for women and their children. So this was a topic that we, um, I had proposed about whether or not women in Kibera can be climate warriors. Um, and the climate warrior is not necessarily, um, you know, girls like Greta who are going to be going and doing um, work on the street. It will also be women like these in Kibera who are running their businesses. Um, and we do that in, you know, very important ways by building opportunities for women, by building friendships amongst women in the work that they do, by building independence among the women because they're better able to take care of themselves if they're independent. And because of the areas that we work in, we hope that we're helping women to build the climate resilience, not just for them, but for their community. Thank you. That was Vera Bukachi, Research Director and Co-Lead of KDI Kenya. And before her, a panel discussion about women warriors against climate change. And that's all we have time for on today's program of Accent of Women. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. 
The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. The music for Accent of Women was written and produced by George Kunjeri. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website. That's 3cr.org.au. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. Thanks for tuning into the show. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week.